Mark chapter 8. And it's amazing as we look at the Word of God, how the Word of God just seems to, like a flower, keep blooming and keep growing and grow to us. I'm going to read the verses that we read on last Sunday evening again. I'm going to try to couple back up to that if we could. But begin in verse 34. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will, lose, will, will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he, gain the, if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I want to speak to you again on the thought of a question of the soul, the questions of the soul. Peter's objection, you remember in the previous verses, allowed our Lord the opportunity to teach the great truths to his disciples and to teach the great truths of discipleship. Suffering, and notice he said here in verse 34, and when he had called the people unto him with his disciples, he said unto them, so he's talking to all these that are following, and his disciples. But suffering, if you remember, was not only the lot of the Savior, but it's the destiny of all who identify with him. John tells us this in John 15 and verse 20, Remember the word that I said unto you, that the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. First Thessalonians, Paul said this, chapter 3 and verse 3, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. Should we think it strange that we, as the children of God, would face persecution? I don't think so. There are those that are trying to say, well, we need to change things because the world, uh, the, our country is changing. Folks, there's never been a time since time began that God's people lived in a perfect environment. Amen. They've never lived under a perfect government. We're not going to change it. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to get those in that have gospel and have biblical principles behind them. But they're not going to change the government. I don't believe. It's amazing how that you get some that seem to have Bible principles and when they get amongst that crowd on the hill... They abandon all of those principles. And that's a sad fact for sure. But calling the people to him, Jesus began to teach them with his disciples. And notice, by the way, we Baptists have been given a hard road because we give an invitation. These Calvinists don't like to give an invitation. But here we see... He said, whosoever, whosoever introduces the conditions for following Christ and implying 
that there are perhaps some in this audience here in, in these verses, in verse 34, and the verses just following, there's some that perhaps in that audience that would like to be followers of Christ. Whosoever also indicates that this invitation is open to all. Now there are three conditions that, lead, that are laid down uh, the first two are decisive acts, if you would. The third one is a continuing action. We start, we, dis, we, do, we receive Christ, we want to be his disciple, and then we continue in action being his disciple. To deny oneself is to lose sight of oneself and, and one's own interest. It's amazing how man is so centered on himself and, and his own interests nowadays. It must, it, must, it must be a radical change from the consuming interest in self to, to a selfless serving of God. The discipleship is a path to be chosen. It's a path of following Christ. Every Christian is a disciple by choice. And the terms are plainly presented in a threefold chord, if you would, we would see in these verses. First of all, it's to deny self. It's hard to deny self, isn't it? And then to take up the cross. And then to follow Christ. Let's look at these briefly. There again, don't get excited about the word briefly. I am a Baptist preacher. <laughs> Denying self, to deny self. The, this Greek word, the Greek words that are translated deny self, uh, depicts the person wanting to follow Christ. He first must deny Himself, and the verb. This verb here is is from the Greek word apartamio, apartamia, and it's really strong in its terms. If you would, it means to have no association with, or to completely or totally disown. You're not your own. You're bought with a price, Paul said. Now, Jesus makes the point that those who wish to follow him must be willing to disown themselves and to give up everything for his sake. I remember years ago a man stood here. By the way, I've found over the years that those that talk about what they gave up probably really never, never gave up anything. We had a man that stood here and preached and talked about how that he gave up a six-figure job, a six-figure-a-year job to serve Christ. I didn't like it then. I don't like it now. <laughs> I found out that one that's called to serve Christ is going to serve him. And no matter where he is or what he's doing, what he does, in Matthew chapter 13, I want you to notice in verse 44, he said, And again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to treasure in the hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for the joy thereof goeth, and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth the field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he hath found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had, and bought it. Now, they must, Jesus is saying that the disciple must abandon both our self-righteousness. He's telling them you must abandon your self-righteousness and your sin and submitting all your, their ambitions, all their agendas to him. Now that's denying, to deny self. But secondly, to deny, to defy the world. Define 
or, or denying self must be followed by the willingness to enter into a humiliating death march, if you would. Uh, the picture that Christ portrayed here was that of a common felon being forced to, to, to shoulder his own cross, the cross on which he was to die, and the, it was the place to the place to carry it to the place of execution. Crucifixion was a Roman means of execution. Many times they would, they would take the Christians and put them on crosses beside the road as they would go in, as you would enter into Rome, and so the roads that went into Rome. And of course, it would be a deterrent, they would think. The crucifixion was a Roman means of execution, and by the time that Mark recorded what Jesus had said, his, his, his readers were painfully aware of the fact that of, of what had happened to Jesus, and, and to follow Jesus might mean literally the cross. And when Jesus spoke of following him, he meant not only the idea of imitating Christ in the way of life, but also that of suffering, even to the point of death. And folks, if things keep going the way they're going, I wouldn't doubt that we don't face martyrdom again. And maybe in this country, we that are older may not see it, but I'm afraid that some of these young people will see it. The one who follows Jesus must turn from his self-idolatry. Isn't it amazing how we live in a nation that seems to be consumed with its own idolizing themselves? And we must uh, turn from that self-idolatry and, and accept the shame and the suffering which, which comes as a Christian and to retain and retain a continuing right relationship with Jesus Christ. Some over the years have decided they don't want to follow Jesus anymore. I would submit, I wonder, did they, they ever follow to start with? As Jesus walked toward death, so the Christian, the Christian must face death to self. Now, this is not necessarily the Christian doing anything. It is not the Christian doing anything to bring his own demise physically, but it's that he, he dies to the world. He dies to himself. But then the third thing we would see in this is there's a devoted loyalty. While deny and take up suggest actions of a def definite action, the word follow is a very intense word. It means a continuous that there's no place to quit. Continuous action. The word follow comes from a word, the same word that is found in John chapter 10 and verse 27 where Jesus described his followers as a flock, as his flock. And notice he said there, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. They follow me. In other words, they give up all to follow me. A disciple must follow all the days of his life. Following the Lord is a lifelong path, is it not? And the Lord now enlarges his audience in here, uh, speaking to, to all who would follow him, not just to his immediate disciples. He's, he said all of those who are around, he's speaking to them. But folks, he's speaking to you. He's speaking to me. The time had come to put it all on the line. If a cross was prepared for him, as he had just told his disciples, a cross was also prepared for everyone who would follow him. I want you to turn with me, please, if you would, to the, to the book of Galatians real quick. Galatians chapter 6. And we see this whole concept in Galatians chapter 6. And notice he says in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 12, As many as desire to make fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised. 
only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. Notice this in verse 14. But God forbid that we, that I, Paul said, that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his cross. By whom the world is crucified unto me. I've got to decide, I've got to deny, that's the crucified to the world. And unto me, and I unto the world. You see three crosses right there. Three crucifixions in that one verse. And that's what we're called to do as disciples. So much then for the so-called prosperity gospel. The name and claim it crowd and religion are far removed from true Christianity. You see these false prophets every day. You hear them every day spousing their poison across the, the, the internet waves and, and across the TV. And I'm not so sure that the dear one who's writing us the letters, uh, I'm not so sure they are not caught up in some of that. This last letter said, pray that I, that, that I could release my miracle. That seems to be seems to sound like the old steam garbage. The world, if the world offered him the Lord of glory, a, a, a cattle stall to be born in and a cross to die on, why should we expect that it would offer us anything else? Uh, the world is enemy territory. Did you know that? Satan goes around to the word of God says as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5, 8. But yet people think that it's strange that Christians have suffered the same horrors and the hardships as other people and, they, uh, and, and that they were, are often so bitterly persecuted even to the point of death. It's, it's not so strange this is a God-hating, Christ-rejecting world. It would be stranger by far if the Lord's people were not hated in the world. In the Gospel of Mark here, let's turn to Mark chapter 13 and verse 13. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endure that he that shall endure unto the end shall be saved. Now you've got to watch this verse very carefully. There are two doctrinal teachings in this verse. The first is while Christ may be speaking practically to the apostles. By the way, none of them endured to the end of the world. And the second teaching is not only practically, but it's a prophetically, it's, it's taught prophetically here. And he's addressing and speaking to, the, I believe, those 144,000 in the tribulation. Chapter Roman, uh, Revelation 7, verse 1 to 8. Now, I don't have time to go into all of that. But uh, notice in Luke 21 as well. Luke 21, verse 17. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. And let's go and compare, again, John 15, if you would. John 15. Verse 24 and 25. The Lord said, if I, had not done, if I had not done among them the works which, uh, which, uh, which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. Folks, 
the unbelieving world, they hate God. They hate God. And re, uh, not, too many, not too long ago, the Pope himself said that, that um, Krauss Schwab is more important than Jesus Christ. That's the one that's seeking to limit anything you do and to limit your existence if possible. And one of his cronies said, we are now able to control a man's mind. We're now able to control them even medically. Hey, we've just come through some of that, haven't we? We have, in these verses that we read in our text, we have, we have the two crosses. We have the cross from verse 31 down to verse 38. We have the cross of Christ. Notice it says, verse 31, and this is Mark 8, 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and of the scribes and be killed. And then he says, and after three days, rise again. Do you realize those last six words are the basis for every bit of this? That he must rise. If he did not rise again, you're still in your sins. If he didn't rise again, we're still lost. So there's, there are two crosses here. There's the cross of Christ. And then there's the cross of the disciple. And we saw that in Galatians chapter 6. This is... One in verse 31 is one of the many must in the Bible. Earlier you remember that, that Jesus that Jesus reminded Nicodemus, he said, as Moses, John chapter 3 and verse 14, as Moses was as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Must he be crucified? Must he die? And later on. By, by the way, if you, if you go to John chapter 3, you'll see there are four busts in there. Later on, John said in John chapter 4 and verse 4, he must needs go through Samaria. By the way, in the book of the Revelation, this is amazing. Revelation 20 and verse 3, he says, speaking of the devil, he said, cast him, uh, let me read verse 1, and I saw, this is Revelation 20 verse 1, and I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the, bottom, of the bottomless pit and the great, a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, the, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be, he must be loosed for a season. So much for incarceration, for What re recuperate or what's the name? What's the word? So much for incarceration, for for uh, making somebody change their mind and their thinking. The devil didn't do it after a thousand years in jail. Then also in Roman and Revelation chapter twenty-two, if you would, in verse six, notice this. He says, and he said unto me. These sayings are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angels to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Must. There are some things that must be, and here he said the Son of Man must be lifted up. And he reminded, you remember, his mother and Joseph, 
wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? Luke 2, 4. He must be killed. You see, Peter couldn't handle that. You see, for him to admit that, that it means that Peter himself would one day probably face the same fate in which history tells us he did. He was actually crucified upside down, history tells us. And, but Peter later reminded the Jews on the day of Pentecost that the Lord Jesus Christ was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God to the cross. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. It had to be settled, and it had been settled in heaven countless ages ago that he would die for your sins and for my sins. I don't understand that, you say. Well, I don't either. If we could understand it, it would be a great blessing. I could never understand why God would give his son for something like me. Never. So to deny self... To defy the world's grasp and to display loyalty to Christ alone. These three things are the questions of the soul. They bring the questions of the soul in verse 36 and 37. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange? For his soul. Now you remember Sunday evening we looked, we saw the first of this. We saw that the soul is a spiritual possession that you have. It's not a material possession. You can't handle it. You can't see it. But apparently you can sell it. Notice we saw first the soul. We saw the creation of the soul. And God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul. Man, in Genesis. Second, we saw the capacity of the soul. The soul is the only part of man that's capable of comprehending and com contemplating God. Remember, the psalmist said this, Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Psalm 25 and verse 1. Psalm 143 and verse 8, Cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning, for in thee do I trust. Cause me to know the way wherein I should walk. For I lift up my soul unto thee. You see, you realize it's spirituality when you consider then its continuation. And so thirdly is the continuation of the soul. A lot of people, I believe it's the Jehovah's Witnesses that tell you that when you die, you just go to the grave and there's nothing else. It all ends. But I'm telling you, the soul continues on and on and on. The body dies, and when the eyes of the body cease to see, the soul still sees. And when the hands of the body cease to touch, the soul still touches. And when the ears of the body cease to hear, the soul still hears. And when the life of the body is gone, the soul goes on unaffected, uh, unaffected and, uh, and, and unaffected by the cessation of the life of the body. The body dying does not affect the soul. So we saw that Sunday evening. But now I want us to go on with these verses. And I want us to see, secondly, the soul is a durable possession. There's not only the spirituality of the soul which makes it valuable, but it, there is a durability of the soul. The soul endures forever and ever and ever. I think I said before that people say, where would one spend eternity? Eternity will never be spent. It will never end. There were some that used to teach that, that hell was a short span of time, that after a while the, body, the, the soul would be annihilated and everything would be over. No, that's not true. Not scriptural. The soul endures forever. Many would like to think that, that it would perish, of course. Those, those, the, 
the hardened man, the wicked man, the, the evil man, the ungodly man, the immoral man, the man that, uh, that, is, that is fighting against God each day. He's breaking God's commandments and doing, doing wicked, wickedness in his heart and, uh, and in his mind and in his practice. And, and I would like to think that when he dies, it's all over. But it's not. The soul does not age like the body. Hallelujah. <laughs> you younger people have got a lot to look forward to. I've found out if it don't hurt, it don't work. <clears throat> the soul does not corrupt like the body. The soul re retains its durability. What an amazing thing the soul is. Did you know there's a stamp of eternity upon the soul? It's immortal. It lives on and on and on, and neither the absolute happiness of heaven nor the absolute terrors and torments of hell and the torments of the damned can ever extinguish the life of the soul. It's as immortal as God, as the God who made it. It's as valuable, it's valuable because of its spirituality, but it's valuable also because of its durability. Then thirdly, I want us to see the soul is a sensitive possession. It's also valuable because of its sensitivity. It's in the soul that man really feels. I shall never forget on 9-11, my son called me and he said, and I didn't have the TV on. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't, I don't, I don't gather around the TV. But he called me and he said, he was crying. He said, Dad, what's happening? I said, son, what are you talking about? He said, you're not watching television? I said, no. What's going on? He said, turn the TV on. And about the time I turned the TV on, they were replaying the picture of the plane crashing into the first tower. And then I began to weep. My soul was broken. I thought of all those in the... And then as it began to show, as the thing began to burn... And then the second tower was hit, and I watched those people jumping out of the windows on those high, on that high twin towers. And being one that's afraid of heights, I cannot imagine that. Can you imagine jumping out of a building like that? And my soul was touched. My soul began to weep, and I didn't know what to say. He said, Dad, are you still there? I said, I'm here, son. I don't know what to tell you. We'll know more as the day goes on. It's in the soul of man that the real man knows and loves and desires. The soul has an abundant ability for joy. I've been accused of being too joyful. I've said this before and i say it again. I've cried a lot of tears in these years. And I'm going to laugh when I can laugh. I'm going to rejoice and I'm going to feel joy when I can. The soul has an, the, that ability to, for joy. And it's, all, it's, it's so made that the soul can, can have greater joy than ever was experienced even by the angels. The joy of the Lord in our soul. Hallelujah. But it's also created that, um, that it can have the torment of the damned devils in hell, the soul. Man's valuable soul is touched with sensitivity. In the very depths of the soul is that acuteness, the greatest of feeling, whether it be joy or whether it be of torment and despair. In its depths, there's a capacity that 
is so immense and so profound that it can't even be described. And that's what I, when I read the letters of this one that is writing us, I think we hear, and you that have read them and you've seen them, I think you see the person's soul. They don't know what to do. The philosophers talk about great souls. The greatness of a man's soul has been seen in some of his attainments. Even though he's depraved and even though his natural, he's naturally cut off from God, there has been some great attainments and valuable attainments that has reached the scientific field. You know, we follow the science. Men have climbed to the very summit of all that can be done physically almost. I remember in 1969, I stepped out in the wee hours of the morning on the patio of the apartment and I looked up at the moon. I wasn't saved. And I was listening on the television and they told me that a man had just stepped out of a capsule on the moon. And I looked out and I said, how did that ever happen? How could that ever happen? Men have climbed the very summits. But what a valuable thing the soul of man is. The real person is the soul. The, the center of man is your soul. The core of man, the spring of our being and oh, how sensitive the soul is. Notice he says here, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I want us to see next, the soul is a depraved possession. There's one thing that must not be one that must not be overlooked, and that's the depravity of the soul. When you hear and read of some of the things that man has planned for his fellow man now, you understand, begin to see the depravity of the soul of man. What man can do to his fellow man exposes his depravity. The soul of that was made spiritual and durable and sensitive is by nature depraved. It was in the garden that sin has put its filthy, dirty grasp upon the soul of man. And here we hear of some of the things that people do in going astray in what they say and what they do. Who would have, we say, who would have ever thought that person would, could ever do that? Oh, you see, it's the depravity of the soul. That's how they did it. If we had only studied our Bible, we would not have had any surprises at all when we see some of the things that happen. We're only here as we are, every one of us, by the grace of God. Do you realize that you're here today, you breathe God's air today all by His grace? Amen. Amen. Oh, when we see the murderer, we say, oh, but there, but by the grace of God go I. And we see maybe the fallen woman, we we must confess, there go I, but by the grace of God. And we see the adulterous man, we, we have to say, but there, but by the grace of God go I. The depravity in our hearts and in our souls is the seed of every destructive sin. Every destructive sin. It's the only constraint 
of God. It's the only absolute sovereignty of God that is, that is only the grace of God and the mercy of God and the protection of God that kept those, keep those seeds from springing up in our hearts and bringing forth their damnation and their damnable fruit. Remember, Paul said, He that thinketh he stand, let him take heed lest he fall. The depravity of the soul. We all stand on a common platform, don't we? We're all absolutely, totally and utterly depraved in our soul. We know that salvation changes changes a man. That's why he said, what would a man give in exchange for his soul? From the sole of the foot to the crown of the head, there's no soundness in us. But wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, I believe it's Isaiah that said, we're all born in sin and shaping in iniquity. The soul of ours is so valuable, so precious, so wonderful, so amazing, so amazingly spiritual, but so intensely sensitive. I can't help but mention again this person that writes us these letters, but yet so absolutely durable, but it's been marred and scarred by sin. Without Jesus, our souls are lost as far as time is concerned. We are, as we, as we started through this valley of time, man or you, whenever it was, April the 27th, 1948, about 8.23 in the morning, I started in this world outside the womb I started in this world. Nine months earlier I'd started. And God had set things aright for this day here. But set things aright for me to accept His Son as my Savior. Amen. To save my depraved soul. Amen. Hallelujah. We started... in this valley of time as a lost soul. Now in this period, it's called the time of the gospel can, can do something, we can do something about that or something can be done about it. Once, however, the lost soul crosses the boundaries of eternity, then the state, his state, is sealed forever. What is it that every second three people go out into eternity? Every second. But once we cross the great line of eternity, we're sealed forever. We don't know. You say, preacher, do you think we're all lost? No, I don't, I don't know who's lost and who's saved. I don't. You never know. You never know who's listening by the way of the airways. You never know when God would stir our soul. That's what, that's what the Word of God says about it's sealed forever. The Word of God means when it, what's it, what it means when it says, and as a tree falleth, so shall it lie. It's going to lie right there. Thank God that there is hope for the lost soul in time. In time now. Thank God that there's there is hope as long as the clock keeps on ticking, as long as life keeps on holding to the body and the soul together in union, there is still hope, still hope. But once that ticking clock ceases, once time finishes, once the body yields up the soul and the tie is cut, then our state at that moment will become our eternal state. The book of the Revelation said this in Revelation 22.10. 
And he said unto me, Seal not the sayings of, this, of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he that is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. And then Romans twenty-two seventeen says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let them that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And here's our word. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. It's what Jesus said right here, to whomsoever, whosoever. He was laying out for them an invitation. He was laying out for them what must happen. For what shall a man, for what should it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his own soul? We all enter into time with a lost soul. Jesus came to pay that price of our redemption, of course. And God sent the value of our soul at the price, set the value of our soul at the price of the life, life's blood of his dear son. That's how valuable your soul is. Would you give one of your children for any one of us? No. But God saw your soul so valuable that he would give his son to die for you. Notice that expression, the whole world here. You can get the whole world, the wealth of the whole world, he says. What will it, what will it be? What will be the bargain then? It'll be a bad bargain for sure. How many people are striving for wealth? They will never get all the wealth of the world, and they... They may get some part of it for sure, but they may even get enough to satisfy them. But remember that they're even, even if they get, get it all, it's all still a rotten bargain. Who would want this world anyway? Get all the wealth of all the world plus a lost soul. One may be rich, and you are in spiritual poverty forever at that time. Some people sell their own soul for power, some for position, and some for pleasure. You remember the rich man, the rich fool, remember? He got everything he wanted. He got his bank balance. He got all of his pleasure. He got all of his lust. The soul, your soul is so precious. Only the crimson blood of Jesus can redeem it. At all the way to Calvary, he went for me. And he died to set me free. You see, it's the cross of Christ, the cross of Christ that we can be forgiven. But at the cross of Christ, our sins can be forgotten. Hallelujah. Even though we may never forget them all, God has forgotten them all once we're saved. But when God forgives a repentant sinner, he forgets forever the sins which he forgave. Their sins and their iniquities, Hebrews 8:12, their sins and their iniquities, will I remember no more. Oh, sure, we'll remember them, but God will not. Remember them. We may remember them to our dying day, but God will not. The world remember them then. The world will remember them for sure. It's amazing how people try to bring your past up to you. For the world is a hard place. The world is an unfeeling place. It's an evil place. It's an ungodly place. What Need we care as long as the God of heaven has forgiven us and forgotten our past and all of our transgressions. It is in this blessed book, this blessed book right here that's stained with the blood of the martyrs, 
God's book of mercy that we find God's love and God's peace and God's pardon for sinful men. Let me ask a question either here tonight or by the way of the internet. What are you selling your soul for? I want to read you this illustration. You may have read it. I don't know. You may know it. But no doubt you've read or heard of Charlemagne, the king of the Franks. In about 1000, the year 1000, Charlemagne's tomb was opened. And this great king had been dead now for 180 years. And when they opened his tomb, they found the great, a great treasure. But, but they also discovered an amazing sight. They saw the skeleton of Charlemagne sitting on a throne with a crown still sitting on his skull. And his bony hands, in the bony hands of his skeleton was a copy of the Gospels. And there was one of his bony fingers, the story goes, pointing to this text. For what shall a man, it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Charlemagne was a great king, but in the end, none of that mattered. When it came the time for him to die, he left his robes, he left his riches, and he left all of his royalty. Left it all behind. And he went out into eternity to meet God. When we reach the end of life's journey, nothing we have achieved or accumulated in this life will ever matter. All that will matter is in the hour of our in that hour in the, our relationship with Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ. All that will matter is that we're willing to lose our lives to His will, so that He might live through us. What will you find at the end of your journey? Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary.